Take your copy of God's Word this morning and go with me to the book of Philippians, chapter number 1. It's a joy to be here with you, worshiping, and my, how I enjoyed the singing, how that ministered to my heart. Appreciate Brother Jesse. Half of what he said was a lie. The other half of it was inside jokes that you didn't get. For whoever was wondering, why is that kid laughing over there, you know? It's a joy to be here at Sharon Heights. I've followed you through social media for several years now and was delighted when Brother Jesse was called down here. And so it's a joy to finally be here with you. If you're with me in Philippians 1, we'll read beginning in verse number 9. Let me ask before we read, because when we read, the answer to my question will be given. In meetings like this... Um, the, the brother spoke a moment ago about how we talk about revival in the South. And it's kind of a cliche word. But in meetings like this, it's easy. And it's something that churches often ask. is what, what is it that we need? What does this church need? Many have solutions. I looked up on the Internet this morning. Some say that churches need their members to be converted. Some say that they need their leaders to be informed. Others say they need to have an outsider focus. And some suggest that they need a a, a deeper spirituality. And by that, they mean an inner development of maturity on a personal level. Let me ask you this morning, what do you need? Kind of ironic, on, on one of those lists, number two, this one article wrote, Gave six reasons or six things the church needs. Number two was attendance. That's kind of a given, isn't it? (laughs) What do you need? Well, of all the things that Paul knew about the church at Philippi that they needed, here's what he prays for them. And I think what Paul prays for the church at Philippi is precisely what we all need this morning. Philippians chapter 1 and verse number 9, God says, It is my prayer, Paul writing, that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory of and praise of God. May the Lord add His blessings to the reading of His Word. The problem that is faced when we ask the question, what do we need, is that instinctively we began with with almost a panic to search in ourselves for something we can do to better ourselves or to fix ourselves or to fix our church. What, what is it that we need? And what is it that I can get my hands on? And what is it that I can produce that's going to fix the problem? But Paul's prayer points out the precise problem is not something that we can fix. The church's problem is not something that we can fix for ourselves, but only something that can be done for her by God in Christ through the Holy Spirit. Your greatest problem, and I don't know Sharon Heights as a church, I know Jesse, and we talk, but he says good things about you people, so I don't know you know, whether to believe him or not. I've grew up in Baptist churches all my life, so I'm not quite sure if he's painting you fair or not, 
<clears throat> but the we're pretty much church Baptist folk are pretty much all the same if you, you boil us down. And the problem is not something that we can fix. We like to fix problems. We like to identify problems and say, this is what we need and that's what we need to do. But the answer is is that we need something done for us, outside of us and inside of us, that can only be done by God in heaven, but through Jesus Christ and by His Holy Spirit. And so Paul prays for three areas in the church at Philippi. He prays for the church to grow in their love. Now you say, well, preacher, I know that I love the Lord Jesus. That's great. We don't love Him perfectly. None of us love Him as much as we ought to love Him. The Bible tells us to love the Lord our God with all of our heart and all of our soul and all of our mind and all of our strength. And none of us has ever done that for a second. And so we need to love the Lord more. And so Paul prays that our love would abound more and more. Of all the areas he could have addressed and prayed about, all of the things he could have went to, Paul zeroes in on the area of first importance, and that is love. The reason for that is that love is really the entire issue. Love is the fulfillment of the law. What the law commands for us is only uh, able to be obeyed by us if we love the Lord and love one another. As he prays for their love to abound, he is praying for their love for God and for others to grow. What does that mean? Adam Clark said it like this. He said that Paul is praying that our love to God and to one another and all mankind may abound more and more, that it may be like a river perpetually fed with rain and fresh streams. So that it continues to swell and increase till it fills all its banks and floods the adjacent plains. He wants you to be so full of love that it literally spills out in every area of your life. A.T. Robertson says that he is saying that he wants our love to keep on overflowing. A perpetual flood of love. It reminds me of what Jesus said. That when we believe in the Lord. Out of our bellies will flow rivers of living water. That everywhere we go and everything we do. Ought to be saturated by the love of God. And the presence of his Holy Spirit. And so Paul is praying. Now what's interesting about this is that Paul is praying for the Philippians who in this congregation are having division. In chapter 4 and verse number 2, he entreats Yodi and Syntyche to agree in the Lord. There's a dispute. and So what are they fighting over? I really don't know. And it doesn't matter because it wasn't a matter of importance where Paul would have included it. He did that in certain portions of his writing. He always addressed the issues that were important. If it's a gospel issue, see if you agree, it's important. If it's not a gospel issue, it is not a matter of first importance. There are things in life and in church life and in Christianity that are important, but they are not matters of first importance. 
And in those matters, we are to be loving. The Baptist lexicon says we are to be judgmental. But the scripture says that we are to be loving in those matters. And Paul says the answer for you, Church of Philippi, you're having this fuss. What is the solution? You need to love one another. Your love needs to abound. Your love needs to grow. He is praying that their love would grow. But but by that, he is necessarily praying for the river of their love to be perpetually fed by the fresh stream of God's love for them. Because you cannot love God, you cannot love God or others if you don't know and experience His love for you. That is the source that feeds your love for others and for Him. You must know and encounter this great love of God that He has for you. You must know and experience what Paul says when he says that Jesus has loved me and gave Himself for me on the cross. You must know that. And because of that, in response, you will then love Him and love others. First John says, we love because He first loved us. We are never, never the source, never the origin of love for God or neighbor. It is always, always God's love for us. And so... The, the tendency that we have is when we look into ourselves and we see that we don't love God as we ought to, we seem to try to want to strain a little harder. You don't need to strain a little harder. You need to look at Calvary a little longer. Linger until you know the love of God, until it fills your soul and floods the banks of your life and impacts everything that you are and everything that you do. The remedy for lovelessness for one another found in the church at Philippi was not in themselves, but Paul continuously points them to the love of God. And that reaches its peak in chapter 2, where he tells them of Christ's condescending sacrificial love, where he is equal with God. Look, look there, chapter 2, verse 5. Four says, let, let each of you, or, or verse five, I was right. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. You're talking about the Son of God who is worthy of praise and honor and glory, willingly saying, I will lay it aside. I will be born as a servant, wrapped in human flesh, and I will let my creation nail me to a tree for their eternal good. And so what is it that is too difficult for us to sacrifice? When we think of all that Christ has sacrificed for us, look at Him willingly humble Himself for you. Look at Him sacrificially die for you. And look at Him freely and and gladly. The point of this 
passage in Philippians 2 talking about Jesus giving up here is that he didn't give himself greedily or, or, or reluctantly. He gave himself gladly, open-handed, willingly gave all of himself to all that we are. People who didn't want him, he gave us himself anyway, bless his name. And he did it happily. With joy, the joy that was set before him. What was the joy? Yes, it was his exaltation. But it was you, believer. He did indeed delight over you. He says, I am going to bring them that where I am, we're going to be together. And he prays in John 17, Father, I will that where I am, there they may be also. I want them to be with me. Those you've given me as a love gift. I want them because I love them. Because I love you. And so we're wrapped up in this eternal relationship of love. So Paul prays that we would love one another. But rivers only flow downhill. And so the river of God's love only flows from his very heart in heaven. And so we must know his love and it must flow through us back to him. And to one another. So is your love cold? Maybe there's disagreements among you. Is there an area in your life that you could demonstrate the great love of God towards someone else by considering them better than yourself? Are you struggling to love? Well, then look outside of yourself and away from your struggle and look to God in Christ until the Spirit causes you to know His love. And so, may God grant Paul's request to be answered by His Spirit and cause our love to abound. Secondly, this morning, the second area that Paul prays for in the church at Philippi he prays that they would grow in wisdom. A.T. Robertson also said that not only was it this continuing river that was gushing forth, but it had riverbanks of knowledge and discernment, holding the river in. Obviously, now I don't know what they say down here, Jesse, but where I'm from, People like to say that a service got out of the banks. Now, I don't know about you, but if you've ever seen a river actually get out of the banks, it makes a mess. You don't need it to get out of the banks in that sense. You need knowledge and wisdom to guide the river so that it may do what is necessary and needed, that it can accomplish its purpose and bring help and healing and life. And strength to those in need. As we grow in our love for God and love for others, we must also grow in knowledge. Now, you can't have knowledge without love, and you also can have love without knowledge. Romans says that there was a group of individuals who had a zeal for God, but it was not according to knowledge. Neither of those does any good. We must, if we're going to be spiritual, if we're going to be worshipful, we must have Love and knowledge, and they must grow in proportion to one another. As our love grows, our knowledge grows. As our knowledge grows, so our love grows. So it is our knowledge of God, of His person, of His perfections, of His glory, of His love for us, of His will for our lives, and on and on it goes. What's all this for? Why do we need to know all of this and love? 
Paul says in verse number 9 that we would that our love would abound more and more with all knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent. What, what is this meaning? I think he's saying something similar to what he writes in Romans 12. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what the will of God is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. That's the idea, that we have the discernment to approve what is excellent. And so, you don't mind if I take this off? A little warm. We need to be able to approve what is excellent, what is good, right? I mean, then we look at that and we think, all right, I can tell. I can tell what's good and what's bad. That's not the idea. Paul is praying that we as believers would be able to discern between what is good and what is best. There's two good options on the table. You're not going to have a bad choice. A to D, all of the above are good, but one of those is the best. One of those is the most profitable for you as a believer to do the will of God and to obey the word of God and to fulfill his calling for your life. And so he is praying that we would approve that and to apply that to our life, to approve what is excellent is to know what is most profitable for you spiritually and then to live that out. This happens as the gospel begins to touch every area of our lives. The truth is there are areas in our life that the gospel has not yet penetrated. Know how we need it to penetrate every deep and dark area of our life so that it controls everything about us, so that everything that we are is affected and touched by the gospel and affected and touched by the love of God. I'm not talking about surrendering all in that way. I'm talking about God invading who you are with who He is and you then living in light of and in response to Him. So, we begin to live out. When that happens, we live out a life of faith in love to God and for others. This would mean living in light of the gospel and doing everything that you do for the glory of God and for the good of others. What? Does this look like? Well, Paul tells us in Philippians 1, 27, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you're standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith, not about the faith, but for the faith, of the gospel. There's a place to fight about the faith for the gospel. We're to contend for the faith of the gospel, but I trust that everyone here this morning believes the gospel. And so Paul is saying that we are to strive together with one another for the gospel, not be frightened by our adversaries or our opponents. So then in verse chapter 2, verse 1, what does this life look like? It's going to blow you away. It is not like we think. It doesn't look anything like we would think. If you have it in your mind, what's a really spiritual person look like? Here we go. Chapter 2, verse 1. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, 
having the same love, being in full accord of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is in Christ Jesus. You remember that? That's what Paul is praying. That we would live a life of loving service to one another. That I would not push myself to the forefront, that I would not make life about me, but as a church body, when we come together, that I would esteem you and consider you better and more important than my own self. Boy, that would eliminate a lot of issues that we have, wouldn't it? No, I won't. I, no, I want to do it your way. No, let's do it your way. <laughs> no, no, your way. What, what if we would be more concerned about others than we are about ourselves? That's what Paul is praying. What's best, church? Continuing this fight that we may be having or dwelling together in unity? What's best, proving my own point or loving my brothers and sisters? What's best, being right in an argument that doesn't really matter or being loving about issues that are of secondary importance? Well, well, the answer is clear, isn't it? Paul is praying that we would be loving, that we would dwell together in unity, that we could come together. I saw this the other day. My father-in-law said it. You can disagree without being disagreeable. You can love one another and not agree about things that really don't matter about our eternal destiny. And we can yoke up together with people who, who we don't agree fully with on everything. Listen, I don't agree with myself on everything half the time. But we can yoke up with one another if we believe in Christ, love the Lord, trust His Word, and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, and we can serve together and dwell together in unity and oneness of mind and spirit and go all the way to glory just like that. And that, Jesus said, is how the world out there is going to know that you belong to Him. When you love one another... They will know you are my disciples. Because nobody loves like that. It's not natural. It takes the Holy Spirit. And so Paul prays that we would grow in our wisdom to be able to understand that and to apply that. Finally this morning, my watch says it's almost 1 o'clock, so it's about lunchtime. (laughs) The third area that Paul prays for is that he prays for the church to grow in righteousness. He continues in verse 10, So that you may approve what is excellent, what's the point? And so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. And be filled with the fruits of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Everything that Paul prayed about was motivated by judgment day, and by the glory of God. He is not focused on the present, though he's praying about it. He's looking at the judgment, the day of Christ, 
when we will stand before God and He wants the church to be filled with the fruits of righteousness. That so that He may get a pat on the back or so that we might get recognized. No, no. So that God might be honored and glorified and praised because God is glorified in you by His work in you and through you. And so He says, May your love abound. May your wisdom grow so that you will be filled with the fruits of righteousness. You do not grow the fruit, dear branch. The vine does. You just bear it. We are busy a lot of times trying to produce the fruit when we need to be focused on abiding in the vine. If you abide in the vine... And by abiding in the vine, I mean if you remain steadfast in faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and His love for you manifested and displayed on the cross and in the power of His resurrection by His Spirit, the fruit will naturally be produced. It will not be by your efforts, but by the Spirit of Jesus within you. It is called the fruit of The Spirit. And so, abide, church, abide in the vine. And so, you will be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Paul's desire and prayer for the church was that their love would overflow, that they would live in such a way then that they would be pure and blameless. What's that mean? Pure. He's talking about their inner life that they would not stumble in themselves into sin, that they would be sincere. They'd be genuine. They'd be real. Commentary says that in ancient Rome, fine pottery was relatively thin and fragile. Often it would develop cracks while being fired. And dishonest shops would fill those cracks with hard, dark wax which could be concealed when the object would be painted or glazed. But that wax would melt if it was placed in the sun. In ordinary light, it was not detectable. But if you held it up to the sunlight, it would be clearly exposed because the wax would appear dark. Paul is saying here that when you stand in the light of Christ's eternal glory, I don't want you to have any dark spots. I want you to be pure. I want you to be blameless. I want you to be sincere. I don't want you to have the the darkness of hypocrisy, the lack of love within your life. I want you to have lived in such a way that you are genuine. They say that reputable dealers would stamp their products without wax. So he's saying, I want you to be high quality. Isn't that how Jesus is going to present his bride to the Father? Without spot and without blemish. And so be pure in your inner life. But then he says, blameless. He's dealing with our outer life. What others see and perceive. You can snow everybody else and still be a wretch on the inside. And you can be trying on the inside and still stumble on the outside. Paul says, let's put them both together. Let's be right internally, be pure in our motives, motivated by love, 
And let's be blameless before men so that we don't stumble and, listen, so that we don't cause others to stumble. Now, remember who he's writing to. He's writing to believers. He's writing to Christians. And the book is spent trying to get two people in this congregation to get along. So what in the world could we do that would cause others to stumble in their faith? And once again, Paul is telling us that we should lovingly sacrifice our own rights and freedoms for the good of others. What what would that look like? Well, he tells us in Romans 14, this group of people who likes to eat meat, this other group who don't. And he tells them, listen, get along with one another. Quit judging one another about whether you eat meat or whether you don't because God receives you both. So I don't have any problem eating meat, preacher. Well, that's good, but we have problems with other stuff that other people don't have problems with, right? And we got ideas and opinions. It actually says in Romans 14 that we should not fuss about opinions. Brilliant. Don't fuss about opinions. But he says this in in, uh, verse 13, chapter 14. Paul says, Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer. Rather, decide not to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. And Owen and persuaded the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. If your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. He's saying that you can actually have freedom and liberty to do something in Jesus and you would not be sinning, but if it offends your brother's faith and would cause him to trip over Christ, you are unloving if you partake. You understand? So I got freedom in Christ to do this. I got freedom in Christ. That's great. You do. But if it is going to cause your brother to stumble, then you are actually walking in disobedience to Christ and sinning because you are doing it in an unloving way because love would say, I'm going to prefer you over what is mine. That's what Paul's saying in Philippians 2. That's what Christ did. He could have asserted his own rights. He could have asserted what was rightfully his. We can say, this thing, I'm free to do this. I'm free to enjoy this. I'm free to go there and do be this. But our brothers are more important than our freedoms. And they're more important than ourselves. That is what it means to dwell together in love. So that on the day of Christ... We would be pure and blameless. That no one is able to point a finger and say they caused me to stumble in my faith by what they did or or didn't do. He prays that we would be blameless and living a life of obedience and sacrifice. If you live like that, you will be filled with the fruits of righteousness by Jesus to the glory and praise of God. Now, if you're aware of yourself at all, you know we have absolutely blown it. I mean, we none measure up. So let me give you some hope. Let me give you some Jesus. Although we all fall short of this great standard. The writer says this. As God begins righteousness in us through the regeneration of the Spirit, 
So what is lacking in your righteousness is amply supplied through the remission of sins in such a way that all righteousness nevertheless depends on faith. And so you say, Lord, I have absolutely blown it in this area or that. I've been insincere. I've lacked love. I've been self-centered wherever you're at. However, the message lands in your lap and the Spirit applies it to your heart. Nevertheless, you can look away from your failures and you can look to Jesus who is both your propitiation and your righteousness and you can rejoice that God accepts you on the basis of not because of who you are but on the basis of who Christ is, not because of what you've done but because of what Christ has done for you and because of what He's doing in you, you are free from the condemnation of the law to get up and walk in the newness of life. So when you blow it, and you will, I will too, repent, start again. Somebody smarter than me said that is essentially the Christian life, starting over, all the way to glory. So what do we need? We need love. We need wisdom, and we need His righteousness. Let's stand. The Christian life is starting over all the way to glory. I wonder today how many of you need to start over. Need to start over. As Brother Cameron preached about a broken relationship in the church of Philippi, maybe it's come to your mind a broken relationship with somebody in our congregation. I know it's hard to believe a couple of ladies in a church would ever fight about anything, but evidently in Philippi that's what was happening. It was causing division and unrest in the church. Paul says, it's not about who's right. It's not even about the issue itself. Because he says the issue is that you don't have the mind of Christ. What Brother Cameron said is so true. That loving people in the end is not about what they can do for us or how they've treated us. It's about what Christ has done for us. And I can look to Him. And as I'm transformed by Him, I can be transformed in a new relationship with these other people. Do you need to start over in a new relationship? Do you need to start over because you haven't been sincere? You looked all, maybe you look all great on the outside to all of us. We could shine you up to the light of God's holiness. We'd realize you're a crackpot. We say, Lord, I need you to fashion me somebody who's sincere. For everything that revival may be or could be, it's about starting over. You can start over with Jesus today. Maybe you need to come and present yourself to him. I was so struck by what Brother Cameron said about the vine and the branches. Because so many of us go through our Christian lives and we're just exhausted. Trying to produce all this fruit. Church, Jesus has given you permission just to be a branch. Connected to the vine. Stay in him and he'll do the rest. We're going to sing together today. If you need to come and start over, the altar is going to be open.